HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. This week on Meet and 3, we explore the relationship between food and style. I knew from the start that I never wanted to, like, hot glue bread onto my body. <laughs> like, I wanted to be able to enjoy it after, and I did. Food, which is so ephemeral, right? It's something that you eat and it disappears. With an image, it remains. It stays alive forever. Food and fashion align in that they're both lenses through which to look at culture, right? And they're both also tangible things we can use to express ourselves and our identities. Tune in to Meet in 3, available wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this journey through culinary history. And as I sit down to record this show, we are just approaching the nation's big holiday, the 4th of July weekend. And for some reason, my guests, my guest today in his new book just brought to mind thoughts of the 4th of July weekend, Independence Day, Americana. Well, the book is called Food Americana. And what do we think of the 4th of July? I mean, everyone's going to have a cookout, right? You're going to have hamburgers, hot dogs, barbecue, um, ice cream, some ice cream festivities. And then these are, of course, American foods, right? Did you ever stop to think what kind of foods they really started out to be? Well, you know, Often, I've done a lot of shows on American cuisine. Is it American cuisine? Do we have an American cuisine? All the different um, authors and historians who have written books saying, well, yes, we do, and here it is. And if you ask the regular viewer, well, what do you think of as American food? What do they say? Hamburgers, hot dogs, pizza. Yeah, well, they're not wrong. But again, do they know where those foods came from? My guest today is author David Page, author, producer, journalist David Page, and his new book is, as I mentioned, Food Americana, and it's the remarkable people and incredible stories behind America's favorite dishes. David was a two-time Emmy winner journalist, two-time Emmy winner, and that was for his production in food, Right. Um, he was a journalist, traveled all over. We'll let we'll hear from him on that. But then he decided to pursue his passion and traveled all over the world and and learned about all kinds of different foods. And he created a show that was again groundbreaking, and that is diners, drive-ins, and dives. And he produced it for the Food Network. I'm sure that you have heard about it or it's become sort of a reference now to um, diners, drive-ins, and dives, actually. And he really uh, did that for him. He did that for 11 seasons. And it was interesting because I think that took him on another level, a level that I often go to myself, and that's that deep dive to find out what's there in the background. Where did a lot of these foods come from? And how is it that 
they became part of the American cuisine. David, welcome to the show. Hi, Linda. Thanks for having me. And by the way, I just sit here and listen to you talk about me. It's great. (laughs) Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I love being on this end of it because I get to ask the questions and talk about the people you see. And you have the hard part. You have to answer everything. I'll do Um, my best. Uh, This book is, as I said, it just, for some reason, it screamed, uh, maybe because the cover is you know, the colors of the flag and there's stars popping out and, and you know, there's a picture of ice cream and, and I don't know, a beer or something, or maybe it's Coca-Cola. Um, you know, but it, the foods we think of so much as, as being American, and they are in now our iconic American treats, um, but they didn't start out that way. So why don't you give me a little background about why you started this book, why you, why you wrote this book, and then we'll digress into diners, drive-ins, and dives. Well, look, every TV producer thinks he has a book in him. R- writing for television is not like writing a book. You can't just sit down and start telling your story. It was a dark and stormy night, and then Oedipus killed his father. <laughs> what you have to do when you're making television is use your words as invisibly as possible to take your viewers to moments of reality. And I mean real reality, not not reality show reality. And over the years, I I wanted to write a book. It's a different kind of journalism, and I never got around to it. And finally, uh, two and a half years ago or so, I said to myself, if you don't do it now, you're not going to do it. Right. So I forced myself to sit down at the computer. I almost said typewriter. That's how old I am to sit down at the computer and and see if I could do it and to enjoy the freedom that you – I love television. I've, I've made television for half a century, uh, and it's a wonderful thing. But there is a freedom in being able to not be constrained by the visuals that appeal to me, especially in telling detailed and complicated stories about food. Uh, so I, I sat down, I gave it a shot, and uh, I found out, A, it's a hell of a lot harder than I thought, B, it's a lot of fun, and I'm very pleased with, with what I came up with. Huh, that's great. I mean, this, the, but your fascination with food, were you always fascinated with food? By food? No, not at all. I, I, I grew up without great food. My, my mother, God lover, was a wonderful parent and apparently a very talented accountant, but she couldn't cook to save her life. Mm. So I, I grew up with nothing special. Mm-hmm. And in all candor, it wasn't until I moved overseas that I started to develop uh, an interest in food as more than um, just fuel. I mean, I liked it. I liked to eat. I've never been thin. But it wasn't until I, I moved internationally that I began to explore various cuisines and the cultures that went with them. And that became an enjoyment that just grew. It was that focus on what is the food of this place that I carried with me years later when I ended up doing diners. Yeah, you know, I think that I think that that is a not that this is a common story by any by any means, but I think that's a very common story for people who travel and go abroad or maybe have to live abroad for a while. That that you know, you're trying to, as you said, you're trying to find out what is the food of this place, and food really carries the culture, and you know, that's that's where you first learn about people, their tastes. And of course, even if you taste something, I'm sure you found that might be recognizable to you or not, (laughs) you know, that it always tastes a little different. What makes it taste a little different? Where are we? Why, you know, why am I eating this? And I think that that for, it did for me, um, it spawned my interest in, um, in food and food history. But for many people, I think when they travel and taste, have all those new tastes, to foreign lands particularly, they they then get more interested in food and what they eat. I, I think it's I think it works. Right. Yeah, and and I sometimes um, ruminate about people who won't taste other mm. things. You know, I've, I've 
talk to plenty of folks who just won't try this or that. And I always say to them, try it, take one bite. You could hate it. Great. But you know, you can, you can say you tried it. And, and the food, especially internationally, but certainly in the United States as well, the food really is um, a gateway into history and culture. Uh, you have entire cuisines that are built, for example, upon poverty. And you look back at a certain region like Southern Italy, where uh, if all you had was wheat and some tomatoes, well, then you could invent pizza as the food of the poor. And if you were lucky enough to have a piece of lard or an anchovy, you could top it. But then when you came to the United States and found a vast abundanza of foods available even to the poor, then you could translate your history of poverty into meat-filled red sauces and bountiful dishes. So you're really looking back, it's almost archaeological when you start to analyze what you're eating uh, in a particular place and why. Absolutely. Well said. Um, in fact, you know, it's, it's interesting that that particular story that you related as, a, as an analogy to, to, um, to the beginnings of, of certain foods is that they, they often can travel to America and, as you say, you know, were enriched by the bounty and then traveled back again to their country of origin. And, and you know, Americans changed how some of those dishes um, became popular in, in other countries. Well, you know, and, you can now get a California roll in Japan. It, <laughs> is, it is identified as an American item, but it's, um, it's become, I think, relatively popular. When you get um, Pizza Hut pizza, in the Middle East or in Asia, uh, you're buying an American food in, in the eyes of the folks buying it. Uh, I have no reports of Pizza Hut trying to stake a beachhead out in Italy. That that would be a rough one. Yeah, I think so. But isn't that interesting that we that we really consider pizza an American food? Uh, you know, I think everyone understands that it were that it's not that it's you know that because of the name it has an Italian origin. But yes, we made it American. Right. And we made it American in so many ways. I mean, there, there's at least, there are at least, he said, catching his bad grammar, uh, 30 different American styles of pizza that are identifiable. And many of them are a million miles away from something you would find in Italy. I mean, the, there's a cheese that, that's popular in St. Louis called Provel, which is a processed sort of Swiss-like cheese. And for some reason, it's it was popular in St. Louis. And when hmm. pizza got to St. Louis, well, St. Louis pizza is topped with Provel. It's uh, we have taken the basic shell of pizza, even though it was never when it came to the United States, it could not be as it was in Naples because a we used different ovens. Ours were coal fired; theirs were wood fired, and b the protein content of wheat in the United States differed from the protein content of wheat in Southern Italy. Mm -hmm. So it was not possible to create pizza here at that time that was the same pizza the immigrants had eaten back right. home. So right off the bat, American pizza was different, but we embraced it uh, and and it, it, it moved throughout the country. Although bizarrely enough, it was in its least Italian iteration that it became most popular initially because it was the pizza chains right. that, that were, were born in Michigan and Kansas that in the 50s and 60s started producing this generic, bland, uh, not that I have any opinion on it, I, I hate it, <laughs> the, generic, bland, sweetened sauce thing that they called pizza. Uh, it was, however, through that generic, bland, sweetened thing they called pizza because uh, the name Frisbee had already been taken, that America in many, many places first tasted pizza. Similarly, it was Taco Bell, which no one would claim is truly Mexican food, that opened the door to an interest in Mexican food throughout the country to be followed by 
Mexican restaurants, perhaps owned by Mexican immigrants or, or descendants of uh, Mexican Americans. So we we take stuff and we reduce it often to a low common denominator, not always. And then we build it back up. I mean, in the pizza world, artisanal pizza is a happening thing right. all over the country. Um, in the, the world of Mexican-American food, there is an increasing interest in regional items like bidia de res, a, a spicy stewed beef dish that's amazing. Um, but yeah, uh, at some point, whatever it is we integrate into our cuisine, when it becomes popular enough to be desired all across the country, it's American. It, right. it, it, it's not what it was. And I mean, the country, I mean, it, when it comes to people, they're good things that, that, you know, that people adopted and, and brought back to America and, or through immigrants who cooked it and they embrace and the Americans embrace it. I mean, they're all great tasting things. However, they were bastardized on the other hand, you know, it's not always a great thing, but yeah, but, but let, let's, all, you know. let's, let's replace the word bastardized with modified. Okay. All, all okay. food ways evolve. One of the most popular <laughs> dishes in China right now is scrambled eggs and tomatoes. When mm. someone complains that the Chinese food they're eating is not, quote, authentic, I don't think they're thinking of scrambled eggs and tomatoes. <laughs> I think it's essential that we acknowledge that the American versions of other countries' cuisines are different. There's Mexican food, and then there's Mexican-American food, a perfectly valid cuisine of its own. There's Chinese food, and then there's Chinese-American food, a perfectly valid cuisine of its own. I think you can – you shouldn't necessarily devalue what is done to other countries' foods when they come here. However, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't also want to taste – or, or enjoy or often eat the foods as they were or are now eaten in those countries. In writing this book, I was taken by two young Chinese immigrants to a mall in, in Flushing in Queens, New York, uh, the same neighborhood I was born in when it was Jewish and Italian. Now it's almost entirely Asian. And this food court, food court, uh, massive food hall, uh, and this was before COVID, featured stand after stand after stand of cooks and chefs serving up food as it is eaten today in China or as close as they could get given difficulties with some ingredients because there are now enough Chinese immigrants in America that you can make a living selling food to them, right? not right. selling food to non-Chinese Americans. That's right. That, that does that make was, a huge difference, indeed. It's an incredible difference. And, and look, it, it, that hasn't covered the whole country yet. There are pockets featuring it throughout the country. The majority are on the two coasts in the LA area and the New York area. The food was astonishingly good. Mm -hmm. Much of it was um, items that many Americans, unfortunately, would probably not taste. Right like duck blood or artery, mm -hmm. but they were incredible. And, and also as a teaching experience, you know, American cuisine doesn't make much of texture. All of the textures we eat are within a pretty narrow range. Mm -hmm. Other cuisines, such as the various cuisines of China, because there is no one cuisine of China. It's a massive country with multiple cuisines. But most Chinese cuisines consider texture to be as much of an element of a dish as flavor. And there is a deep interest in a variety of textures, including some that I suspect most Americans would not like. But it's a highly educational experience to taste some of those things and to reflect on the fact that in terms of dealing with food as the sensual, not sexual, but sensual experience that it can and should be, we're leaving out a whole lot of the palate in, in, in this country and what we're willing to try and not willing to try. Right. No, I, and I'm, I, that's a great point. And I think immediately of, of some particular Chinese dishes, some, some Italian dishes, um, you know, eating parts of the animals that, uh, 
you know, maybe are a little chewier than what we're that we're used well, to, or slimy I, in Japan. Yeah, in Japan, oh, sl- slimy yeah. is a big one. I, yeah. I grew up as a, a New York Jew, even though. I was mostly raised in New England, but the grandparents were all in New York. And I vaguely remember a dish called pacha, which mm-hmm. I think was jellied um, feet. Couldn't be pork. We were Jewish. Um, the grandparents kept kosher. But I just wouldn't go near that because uh, it, it looked to me like like some kind of slime. And <laughs> uh, in later years, you know, I, I ought to look it up and see what it tasted like. <laughs> I also enjoyed brains until my grandmother told me what I was eating. What you were eating, right. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's very common. Um, it's I, I think this whole thing about that we are, and that's why I like the connection we have this you know, recording this week um, to America's birthday because we are a nation founded on all these immigrants and all, you know, bring your, you know, your tired, your poor, your huddled masses and your food. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, and, don't leave your food behind. In fact, yeah, right. <laughs> I think it was um, Gustavo Adiano. I think it was Gustavo, mm-hmm. um, who is a noted writer and, and authority on, on Mexican food, right. who said to me, um, Traditionally, America has loved Mexican food and hated Mexicans. <laughs> um, and, you know, there, there is a fair amount of truth to that and not to get political on a food history podcast. But we continue as a country to broaden our interest in foods from elsewhere at the same time that we have this raging political debate over whether we should let people in. Right. Right. You just got to think, think of your food, people. Think of your food. <laughs> Where would we be? Uh, well, you know, there's, it, there are so many interesting stories um, about the backgrounds of food, and not all are as identifiably foreign or ethnic. Um, for instance, I mean, many of them are, 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 I guess, probably, no, I can't even say that. I'm thinking about wings, chicken wings, and no. Because that that has a, a real heavy Asian base as well. It's but, got an Asian base, yeah. uh, although I think that its original incarnation in the United States was as an offshoot of fried chicken. Right. And historians debate whether fried chicken came from Scottish immigrants or enslaved Africans who were brought here. And having read both sides of that debate, I, mm-hmm. I um, courageously say it was probably both. Yeah. And, and you, if you look deep into a lot of other cultures, you'll see it in many other cultures as well. But how it was popularized in the States, I think we, you know, we've got just probably the two. Well, take and it takes and, you back to the food of poverty. I mean, um, the, the Southern fried chicken story includes the tradition of in black churches, the preacher um, going to dinner, lunch each Sunday at a different parishioner's house which resulted in what's called the preacher bird, which is the the fried chicken that would be offered to the preacher when he came to visit. And the the hierarchy of who got to eat what, it started with the preacher who took what he wanted, and then dad, and then mom. And by the time it got down the table, you had like wings and feet for the kids. That's right. (laughs) That's great. Um, But you, you mentioned fried chicken. And in your book, you mentioned a little something about a fried chicken renaissance and for one who never thought that it went out of fashion but uh, talk about the this renaissance as you refer to it a bit well in terms of whole fried chicken of the traditional format over the past few years pre-pandemic it was becoming a hip dish i mean sunday nights it was the featured dish at the Chateau Marmont, where all the celebrities hang out in, in California. Um, it's it's my sense that it was being featured on upscale menus in a way that had it had not been for a number of years. But what's interesting, the, the real renaissance has gone down market in, in that the uh, the fried chicken sandwich wars of 2019 and 2020 put fried pieces of chicken front and center and uh, created a frenzy, if you will, that hasn't completely stopped. Um, You know, McDonald's recently came out with another version. Was it McDonald's? I think so, of their 
fried chicken sandwich. And now Burger King has come out with something that they want you to pronounce as the chicken, uh, which is not, in my view, great marketing. But anyway, um, you know, David Portolatin, one of the uh, country's leading um, analysts of the food business, pointed out two things. One, Americans love new things as long as they've had some form of it before. before right. And number two, he explained ch chicken overtook beef in this country as the number one protein quite a while ago. Um, and, and much of the impetus for that may be us deluding ourselves into thinking we're being more healthy because in reality, most of the chicken we're eating is fried. Mm-hmm. And then you add a little heat to it, and then the hot chicken became the, the well, hot minute. That was the yeah. hot, you know. <laughs> oh, na look, Nashville hot chicken is still yeah. having a moment. Um, oh, yeah. It's, uh, and I hate to say this because I, I quite rightly featured it heavily in the book. I find the older I get, the less uh, I want to burn the roof of my mouth. Mm. So it wouldn't be at the top of my list. <laughs> Oh, but it's good. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it, then, an individual piece of it can be wonderful. And then yeah, you have to drink milk. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, a lot with a lot of Asian food too, just keep that, you know, or Indian food, just keep the yogurt or the milk handy and you know, you're in, you're okay. Right? Yeah. But it's <laughs> interesting. You mentioned the prevalence of yogurt in, in cultures that feature extremely spicy foods, because when you do hit that level of, Hmm, this might hurt. It is, it is milk products, not water that that can that's right. ease the burn that's right and get that fat to coat the mouth and get rid of the other stuff or All interestingly right. enough hops from from um hop intensive beers can do the same thing i am told <laughs> that's why it's so good to wash all that hot stuff down with a beer Okay, now I yeah. understand. Well, there are a, a few other stories that I wanted to get into, and um, and I will, and I intend to, after we take a short break. So stay tuned, and we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the tabard is comprised of 35 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on an eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail served on the beautiful patio, which has ample room for social distancing. Travelers from around the world find the tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. Hi, we're back, and I'm speaking with David Page about his new book, Food Americana. Well, I guess you don't really have to guess what it's about. It's about food Americana, yeah. but what's, what's good is that the remarkable people and incredible stories behind America's favorite dishes. I mean, more so than favorite dishes, you, I mean, you could have gone, this could have been a tome, you know, of 18 volumes, but um it's, I would say more there, uh, the iconic foods, uh, as you've mentioned in the book as well, more so than just their favorite foods, because these are foods that everybody knows uh, that and, and everybody probably has had or or celebrates. You know, they're they really are. Uh, I mean, the list. How did you how did you limit the list? Number one. That's what I want to know. I found out after years as a network news journalist mm -hmm. that um, one of the wonderful things about being an author is you can determine the universe. Mm -hmm. You're, without being unobjective, your opinion can shape things. And I, I did a fair amount of research, but in the final analysis, it was my decision on what foods I thought made up the core of an American menu. Uh, I did not include hot dogs because. Um, you know, there, there's very little uh, cooking involved in a hot dog. I mean, mm -hmm. and hot dogs will be in my next book, but uh, the the interest factor in hot dogs is what you put on them. It's sauces and such. Uh, so I left them out. Um, I left basic beef out because okay, that that's yeah, we we like steak, but, but most of everything that I chose seemed to me to be an interesting food way that had permeated the culture mm -hmm. that you could find 
anywhere that when someone said, what should I eat today? These options, with the exception of the caviar chapter, came to mind. Um, And I left some things out because even though they're popular, I don't think they have yet cracked into being um, part of American cuisine, for example, Thai food. Well, I was which, just going to say Thai food, and you, men- you mentioned Andy yeah. Ricker. And, you know, it's uh, um, it, <laughs> you have to laugh when you go back and you travel because there was a time when Thai food was so unusual, right? And now every every small city across America has got at least one Thai restaurant. Yeah, but it's not, in my view, and this is just my opinion, it's not at the top of anyone's thought process. And if, if you got a Thai restaurant in a small town, it's probably not patronized by the majority of the population. It's it's different than your ability these days to pick up sushi at um, the 7-Eleven. Um, I think the- oh, Well, okay, they'll hold that thought. I think of Vietnamese food the same way. Uh, there, there are a few things on earth as, as good as a banh mi, right. but it just isn't part of that core menu. And, and it may get there, it may not. Yeah. You know, there are some foods people have been trying to get us as a country to adopt with no success. I think most notably of um, uh, Peruvian food, mm-hmm. which is fantastic. And there have been real efforts made by chefs and tastemakers to to get America on on that bandwagon. And there are plenty of terrific restaurants serving it, but I, I don't. It hasn't broken through, and I don't know that. Uh, well, now you're back to what people like. Uh, any cuisine that features as one of its. Um, most popular, uh, most representative foods, beef heart is, is probably not going to get... going to be high on the list. Yeah. <laughs> right. Although anticolchos are fantastic. Yeah. Well, or, or sheep's heart for that matter. That's, I mean, Malaysians, Malaysians eat a lot of sheep's heart. I did not know Strange. that. Yeah, yeah. Weird. Well, it's, look, it's, it's, it's a muscle. What, what is beef? Beef's a muscle. Um, eat it all. The right. meat, uh, I had pho, some pho the other day with pork heart. It was mm-hmm. terrific. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, it, another food that, uh, that pops into my head, um, oh, you, you mentioned sushi. Yes. Now, how, how, now why uh, like Americans think they've sort of taken this over and they love their sushi. Well, you said the California roll, and now in California roll you can get, you know, in, in Japan. Uh, that's an odd one to include in the group, I think. No, not at all. The, okay. uh, obviously, she is self-interested, but um, one of the top executives at the largest company producing pre-prepared sushi in America explained it to me this way. When she and her friends would duck out of high school for a quick lunch, they had burgers. Today, her kids mm-hmm. have sushi. Okay. Um, sushi is such a widespread item in America now. It's available in grab-and-go form at virtually – well. I don't have the statistic on this, so I am speculating virtually every supermarket in the United States. It's certainly been at every supermarket I've been in recently. Um, it's it's a daily option. You want to go out for sushi? Let's get some sushi. Uh, it the People, even, even as uh, American sushi rolls uh, grow larger and more complicated and, and higher and higher in calories, sushi still carries that imprimatur of being healthy. Uh, which is one of the things that helped launch it as an American item in the first place. But I would argue vehemently that, that sushi is about as American as you can get today. Yeah. Uh, bagels. Yes. I don't want to touch on everything you wrote about. I want the people to read the stories for themselves. It's okay. I like talking some, about it. <laughs> there are some things that just call to me, and you're my friend, Josh Tupper, you I, you talked to. For the oh, book, you know Josh? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the but bagels again. Here's something that you could find in major cities that had a concentration of ethnic populations. But now bagels are, as you said, every supermarket uh, lenders, as you mentioned in the book, you know, frozen bagels. Wow, bagels became uh, that was you know a, a part of America's cuisine. 
Well, first of all, the number one seller of bagels in America right now is Dunkin' Donuts. Ah. So, and, well, yeah. and I noticed that you did not include that you didn't include many sweet items at all, other than ice cream. But donuts—that's for your next book. Donuts. You know, donuts. I don't have the statistics in front of me, but I don't think donuts are on much of an upswing at this point. Uh, you uh, think they're passe? <laughs> well, let me put no, it this not way. Not in New York. Not in New well, York. Well, okay, but it, New York's different. Everything's available in New York. <laughs> um, Dunkin' Donuts, which has now changed its name simply to Dunkin', describes itself in all corporate-related filings as a beverage company, as a coffee company. Um, it, it makes... Uh, a vast percentage of its revenue from coffee. Uh, do- donuts are not necessarily, you know, when's the last time? Okay. You live in New York. It's different, but. Well, these are gourmet. These are artisanal donuts. These are, these are, you know, fancy gourmet donuts. Right. These aren't and, Dunkin' Donuts we're talking and, about here. And and that's a wonderful thing. But yeah. when you think about what you're going to eat on a given day in Lincoln, Nebraska, um, Going and grabbing an artisanal donut probably is not at the top of your list. Yeah, you're right. Um, and well, I, and I haven't done enough research, but but my opinion. And look, I grew up in New England, and then I was an investigative reporter for many years, so I've, I've had plenty of Dunkin' Donut um, with a cop uh, at the location late at night. So no, mm-hmm. I, I, I I and and by the way, the the Dunkin' Donut original, the one with the little handle. Mm-hmm. Is a is a great, wonderful, delightful thing, but I, I don't see the donut shop anymore as a a central element in American cuisine. I mean, it's it's fine, but um, you're more likely to pick up one of those little boxes of um, miniature donuts at the Entenmann, convenience Entenmann's store. Little donuts. <laughs> well, look, Entenmann's anything is wonderful. Right. Well, you know, it, but they have they have quite a history too behind them, an international history. So that's something for you to research. We'll we'll, we'll get into that after the show. We'll talk about it. It's a that. deal. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, Along I'm working few, on the next book, so good. you know. All right, all right. Along with some other sweets. I mean, there you got. Oh, you got a whole sweets book to do. That would be great. Uh, yeah, but sweet sweets are interesting because, and I say this having done only a little research, I have a sense that sweets are far more regionally defined than um some other items for example they're creeping in i live i live on the jersey shore (laughs) where if you can't get a cannoli at the local bakery um it is legal to blow the place up (laughs) um that that's probably not the same in cleveland and there are probably baked goods in cleveland that i don't know about that i can't get here no but texas is invading the rest of the country certainly new york with kolache so well, kolache that, is that, a great item. So, and also remember, yeah. Texas. If you're going to food market, which is so much of what drives um, the opening of uh, new kinds of restaurants in various places, there is no better marketing tag than Texas. Texas has a mythical place in yeah. in, in American history. And if it comes from Texas, it might be at least worth looking at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. How about something that comes strictly from America? Okay, something that comes strictly from America, but I still argue um, we only know it and eat it because it comes from another culture is lobster. I uh, that's where I was going. All right. Yeah. When 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 the explorers and then the settlers came over here, um, they got their first look at uh, North American lobster and they kind of gagged. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was not something to eat. Uh, the situation changed when uh, these um, upper middle class uh, Brits realized they were not trained in um, in farming. And they needed help from the Native Americans to survive their first few winters. They were taught how to cook lobster. Or first, they were taught you could eat lobster, mm-hmm. and then they were taught how to cook lobster by Native Americans, who, uh, at least uh, some of the time, would wrap the lobster in seaweed and put it on the coals. Um, and if that sounds somewhat reminiscent of 
the clam bakes that mm-hmm. continue to this day in New England, it ought to. Um, so yeah, lobster. In fact, Ruth Reichel said to me that in her view, lobster um, is really ought to take the place of the hot dog or the hamburger or the pizza slice as the quintessential American food. Yeah, Cut. and you know the, the only problem is is that the you know other than farmed lobster, of course, um, the price and and the availability, um, you know, but. Yeah, but that that raises a whole see that raises the regional availability question. Right. More and more recently, and when I say recently, I mean decades. What used to be regional American food has become more and more available elsewhere, and uh, hence the conundrum: lobster rolls sold from um, a food truck in uh, some place far, far away from the main coast aren't bad. Uh, the processing of lobster meat in Maine is a pretty sophisticated item these days. So you can have a pretty good lobster roll uh, elsewhere, or you can go to Maine and have lobster the way those of us who grew up in New England think it ought to be. Mm-hmm. I uh, who's to say if you should have to travel to Maine to get a good lobster roll? We see the same thing in in for example barbecue. You right. used to have to go to Memphis to get Memphis ribs. You used to have to go to Texas to get Central Texas brisket. And I say Central because um, brisket is not uh, the form of barbecue throughout all of Texas. Anyway, nowadays there are many barbecue restaurants. Uh, that are mixing and matching styles from all over the country. If they do it well, great. Many of them don't. Uh, I miss the the mystique and the romance of traveling someplace and looking forward to what only they can serve. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I live on the Jersey Shore. I believe that our oysters here are better than the oysters in New Orleans. But I sure look forward to that New Orleans oyster pole boy when I go to New Orleans. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, so I I don't know. It's uh, I I feel strongly. But you're right. There are just a few, a few remaining foods, as you say, that have to be eaten on site in their locale. I mean, this is homogenization of American cuisine is you know, we've got to seek to, to stop it and, and, you know, and bring out something new. Well, it's also, as things get popular elsewhere, uh, we do things to them. For example, grits. Mm-hmm. Um, grits have become more popular throughout the country. They're no longer just in the South. And I was talking to some folks from South Carolina the other day uh, about the fact that I enjoy shrimp and grits. But I, I ended up fessing up to the fact that I use instant grits. Mm. And they kicked me all over the place. <laughs> um, I can still feel the wounds. And then they sent me a couple of packages, literally um, cloth sacks, mm-hmm. of heritage grits from South Carolina. Queechy, Queechy boy? I, I, don't, I don't remember. They're, they're, they're downstairs. And I made grits the other day, and it was a whole different experience. It was stunning. It was remarkable. So, you know, that's another element of the available. Well, look, that takes us right back to to, to, uh, bagels, which only became national because uh, Mr. Thompson invented the bagel-making machine, and the Lender Brothers leased the first one and started producing and freezing bagels that could be sent all over the country. And whether it was that particular machine or ancillary equipment that fed dough into it, uh, it was necessary. The, the Thompson Company denies it's their fault. But uh, bagel dough uh, was thinned. And uh, for the taste of the rest of the country, the bagels were made sweeter. Hmm. Um, And that's what America came to know as a bagel. Now, the good news is on the other side of that, the artisanal bagel industry, people actually making bagels by hand the way they used to be made, is on a major upswing throughout the country. 
So, right. you know, I guess everything comes around. Yeah, I guess it does. You know, it's interesting. Um, all of these stories are interesting. And I, I um, tell my, have to tell my listeners, you really, if you want a fun read, because it is a fun read. It's, it's an interesting Thank read. You. And it is, and it's also um, a lot of good facts and a lot of good research went into this. And Thank it's it, just so many wonderful stories in here. And at first I thought, oh, well, just a few different foods here. It's not that much. Oh, but, you know, you go into the stories and it gets your mind to, to thinking. And, and I love that. I will say that the foods that are seem to be the iconic American uh, foods that you've picked out in particular, for the most part, tends to be what we now consider fast food. Well, it's been... Uh... But which came first, the chicken or the egg? Right, I mean, they're, right. they're, they're foods that we liked mm-hmm. enough that somebody said, well, I can sell a lot of these in a short period of time. Um, the, the only uh, – look, you could make a strong argument that it was the fast food business that made the hamburger. Right. Um, because uh, the first fast food hamburger chain was White Castle – and they saved the hamburger from the hell of public opinion. Uh, Upton Sinclair had written The Jungle mm-hmm. about the abuses of the meatpacking industry. And all of a sudden, hamburger was reviled. So White Castle uh, took that on directly, created restaurants that looked like hospital operating rooms. White, I mean, white, they were right. white tile and, and stainless steel. Right. And they prepared the food directly in front of the customer to prove that they weren't pouring um, sheep urine into anything. And I don't know where I came up with sheep urine, but anywhere. That's very weird. Sorry. And that is what made the hamburger what it became. So I, I think you could argue that um, the chain was essential in, in in addicting us to burgers, though they certainly existed long before the chains. But so much of the rest of it, I think we liked enough that somebody said, well, I could sell a lot more of this. Mm-hmm. And and they did. Some, and, and by the way, not always with terrible results. I mean, I haven't eaten. No, true. I haven't eaten KFC in quite a while, but back in the day, I recall KFC as being damn fine fried chicken. Mm -hmm. I I don't know what they've done to it. You know, they have 3,000 different versions now, so who knows? But at one time, uh, that was good. Uh, The the dirty little secret many professional chefs won't share is that they love Chick-fil-A. Yeah, um, it, it's long been a, a cult favorite among people who make food for a living. So chain food doesn't yeah. have to be terrible. Um, and it often no, it gets a, an unfair rap. Although what's interesting is now you see hamburger chains like Five Guys or Smashburger doing, in essence, what White Castle did by saying implicitly to people, you don't want to eat that garbage at McDonald's. We make a good burger. And the so-called better burger niche is doing very well. Yep, yep. You know, and and pizza, back to pizza again, and hot dogs and pizza, pizza, hot dogs, hamburgers. I guess that all kind of <laughs> in one, one lump sum. But you had mentioned how Ruth Reichel said lobster should replace the, uh, um, you know, the... The rest of the, the pantheon, yes. Right. Um, I, where I read somewhere, or I was talking with some people somewhere that... You know, it used to be you have to go out, you got to go on a run, and kids need dinner and um, inexpensive, and you give them a hot dog, right? Hot dog, a lot of how many kids grew up on hot dogs, right? And it's no longer hot dogs, but uh, it's pizza. Pizza is the number one go to meal for, well, for many families. I mean, it's just, it's, you know. Well, pizza. first of all, they'll bring it to your house. <laughs> It'll be better, right? Secondly, it has a number of comfort food attributes. It's warm. Mm -hmm. It's tactile. Depending upon what you put on top of it, it can be gooey. And it makes kids happy. Right. And, you know, it's actually, I'd rather see them eat that than a lot of other things. I mean, it it does have healthy aspects to it. You know, 
pizza, by definition, is not bad for you. No, not at all. A pizza with a stuffed crust and 42 pounds of sausage may not be in your best interest. (laughs) (laughs) But And, you know, the thing is, pizza is one of those things that is usually okay. We have Mm -hmm. a takeout pizza joint on on this island that – we will sometimes, because neither one of us wants to cook or get up off the couch, we will sometimes order from. It's perfectly adequate pizza. I know what I'm getting. Nothing about it is going to make me jump up and down and bring out a new edition of my book. <laughs> but it's fine. Fills you, know, you up and you didn't have to make it. <laughs> yeah, it's fine. And, and by the way, I learned writing the book how hard it is to make pizza. I mm-hmm. went to Mm-hmm. I went to pizza school in, in San Francisco, and I got to tell you, this is far more complicated than anybody realizes if That's you're right. going to do it right. That's right. Well, with that, I think we I could. you are very interesting. The book is very interesting. We could go on talking about every food we've eaten because it's all... It's all good on some level, right? Of course. And and I look forward to what comes next from your search and deep dive into foods. Doesn't have to be food Americana next time. It can be, hey, let's you know. I you know what? It, it, it's not the next one, but I would love because I particularly love it. I'd love to do the food of the Mediterranean. I, I got to put mm. that on the get to mm. list. All right, put that on your list. Okay. Sounds good to me. All right, David Page. It's been a pleasure, a truly a pleasure, and. The book, again, is Food Americana, and um, David is also the creator of Diners, Drive-Ins, and Dives, which we really didn't get to talk about, but how Americana is that, right? So, uh, absolutely. Right. So stay tuned. Maybe we'll hear something more from David in the near future. Thanks, it's, David. It's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having okay. me. And thank you for listening to A Taste of the Past. And I want to let you know that A Taste of the Past has been engineered by HeritageRadioNetwork.org. And they have kept us on the air for over 11 years now. So if not they haven't, but you have, because it's a listener-supported network, radio network. And if you can just go to HeritageRadioNetwork.org and click on the beating heart in the upper right corner, or just go to HeritageRadioNetwork.org slash donate, And show us a little love, because you are what keeps us on the airwaves. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. A Taste of the Past is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can also find us at Facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, and more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like tell your friends. And please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.